charts and paper-based charts, and we know it's imperfect in terms of information transfer. It's something that maybe the person working in the reception desk has known for 20 years. How do we go about minimizing that inertia? How do we slowly build confidence in this new idea versus try to drop it on somebody all at once. This is why like 70% of digital transformations fail is it usually starts with one Herculean announcement like, all right, we're going to do digital transformation. And everyone in the organization's like, nope, not for me. No, thanks. Like I'm good doing it the way that I want to do it. It sounds overwhelming. It sounds Herculean. So how might we use the tools of friction theory to approach things in a different way that minimizes that inertia? And again, until we know that these things are true, they're all assumptions. So we put them on a piece of paper. Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. This is part two of our interview with David Schoenthal. David, for anybody who missed part one, can you give us a quick overview on the university stuff, the venture capital, hmm. the book? Idea. Yeah. So part one was riveting. So you definitely need to go back and listen to it. But no, kidding aside. So yet my, my day job is made up of three things. One, I'm a professor at the Kellogg School of Management, where I teach classes on innovation, design, new venture creation, and creativity. Outside of the world of academia, I spent a decade at IDEO, which is a design and innovation consultancy, and also spent a lot of time in venture capital and entrepreneurship, both as an entrepreneur as well as an investor. And now I'm still connected to a couple of funds. I'm an operating partner at Seven Wire Ventures which is a digital health specific fund. And then I'm also an advisor to Design for Ventures, which is a Japanese fund focused on design-led Japanese startups. By the way, we didn't we didn't talk anything about your time at, you know, Deloitte, PwC, and Arthur Anderson and all that. No, we shouldn't. Talk all you want about international tax. I am I can geek out on that for a minute. I actually am interested in any advantage that you feel like having spent that time there has brought to the rest of your career. No, that's a that's a thoughtful question. With, with that, first of all, my first job was with Arthur Anderson. It is entirely possible, I think, that if Arthur Anderson still existed, that I could still be working there. I thought they were extraordinarily smart people with a great culture that did really good work, with certain exceptions, obviously. But it was phenomenal training, and I think it was particularly good training around what large corporations seek when they're doing something new. So we used to do a lot of software design or business model design and learning how decisions get made inside of big global companies was extremely eye-opening to me. Because when I got into the startup space, I think I had a more realistic lens of all of the gates that had to be cleared and all of the personalities that had to be involved in adopting an enterprise solution. And I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that maybe come from a technical background or come from a very optimistic business background and don't fully understand all of the inner workings of organizations that need to happen in order for people to say yes to change. So I think having worked in that space and served those clients and even being a part of those big organizations themselves was was extremely informed. And on top of that, it gave me a lot of global exposure. So most of my work was done outside of the United States. So I think it also made me uh, more well-rounded in terms of taking inspiration from places that weren't in my backyard. Well, it's, I mean, as you say that, I mean, it makes me stop, think about those cliches. I don't know if it's Warren Buffett or who talks about like, you know, for a fish, one day on land is worth a lot of explanation. Mm -hmm. It's not like, like this idea of everyone can tell you about it, but there's a different different context you can like feel in your bones when you've lived it right oh yeah absolutely and then on the entrepreneurship side which, which ones were those is this 
Tavistock? So I worked for I worked for a few companies. Iapix Medical is one, which is a medical device company that made infection control products specifically around respiratory and chronic disease management. Uh, there was a firm called Microdine, which was a water purification business. These were both funded by the same venture fund, which was Tavistock Group, Tavistock Life Sciences. Okay. And so after working for those portfolio companies, wound up going to work for the fund itself, helping to make investment decisions and helping to make other portfolio companies successful. And this was all based in San Diego, California. Yeah. Well, I want to talk more about the book and the friction map. I don't know if that's the right title for it, but maybe one question before you go back there is thinking about being on the entrepreneur side and then going going to the other side and being on the side that's handing out the checks. What advice would you have right now as, you know, kind of, I don't know how many, what year we're on the bull run since 2008, but it's, you know, 13, 14 years or whatever. With the Not sure we're still on COVID it. Yeah. Slip. But, <laughs> but as things have, you know, as things are rounding out here and, and, you know, VCs are telling portfolio companies, hey, you know, like saddle up because the, the spigot's off. You know, and know. things like this. People are still starting stuff right now. What what kind of advice would you have for folks who are looking for funding here? And you know, we're in the the summer of 2022, and the, and the the funding is not gushing currently. Well, I mean, I, I can speak from my own lens, and and perhaps this is more broadly applicable. I, I'm not as worried about funding drying up at the earlier stages. Okay. I think that there'll still be a decent amount of money, plenty of money, actually flowing at the pre-seed, seed, maybe even Series A stages of growth. I think where we're, we're going to see some serious changes in the later stage, people that get into C's and D's and E's, because those business models grow at all costs, shower these companies with money and hope they find a path to profitability at some point. Investors just don't have that kind of patience anymore. Very few do. So I think you're going to see this bifurcation. I think earlier stage companies will continue to find the resources they need. I think later stage companies will have to very quickly find a path to profitability. And I think people caught in the middle, if they can show a near-term path to profitability that is evidence-backed, I think there will still be money for good businesses. I think we're going to see a lot of change in valuations. I think we're going to see some changes in the terms of deals, not surprisingly, as we do in almost every cycle. But also in down cycles, lots of great businesses are born. You know, I think that creativity in this, I don't mean this to sound trite, but a lot of creativity is born out of constraint. And a lot of gutsy ideas are created when people are like, you know what, I, I lost my job or I'm thinking about the world differently. And so you can point back to businesses we use right now, whether it's Facebook or Airbnb or Stripe or others, those were all born during the last economic downturn. Those were born during a recession and now they've become a commonplace in our life. So I think at the earlier stages, there's still going to be resources available. I think the later stage businesses that have not quite figured out how they will become profitable are the ones that are going to experience some challenge. Interesting. Well, then thinking of these, this earlier stage, whether that's pre-seed, seed, these levels. What type of advice would you have for investors, sorry, for entrepreneurs at this point? If they want to speak the language that that funders are looking to hear these days, what's what's a rookie mistake you see being made right now? What's what's a, a good piece of advice that maybe people haven't yeah. heard as often? Oh, God. I don't know if it's advice that they haven't heard as often. I mean, I know you've got a lot of great, really experienced people on this on this program, so I'm sure they've heard advice similar to this, but don't confuse assumptions with facts is a big one. I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that believe their conviction is the thing that will win the day, but that is not a replacement for true evidence and traction in the market. So make sure that you are aware of what is an assumption and what is a fact, what is a hypothesis versus a known truth. 
and design ways of turning your assumptions into facts and do it in a way where you're taking risk out of the venture at every step versus just trying to grow it up into the right. I think having a clear path to profitability is going to be important. I work with a, an entrepreneur and luminary in the field in my work at Kellogg, a guy by the name of Sam Zell, who you might know from being in the real yep. estate space. Yeah, I'm a big Sam Zell fan. So Sam sponsors my institute at Kellogg and has become a friend over the years. And one of the things that Sam says is you'll never go broke by turning a profit, which is among very, among many other Samisms is undoubtedly true. So if you can find a way to become profitable or a path to profitability, you will always have runway and longevity to figure out what the business model ought be. And then I think this sounds trite and cliche, but it becomes more and more true every year that I work in this space is like, there's no substitute for a, a good team. A second rate idea with a great team can be a great business. A great idea with a second rate team is usually going to be destined for failure. The resilience of the founder, the creativities of the founding team, the ability to be evidence-led and market-led, to be open to different ideas. And most importantly, those entrepreneurs that are focused on not just adding fuel to ideas, but those entrepreneurs that are focused to reducing friction. Because usually the reasons ideas don't get adopted isn't just because the idea is not attractive. It's because founders haven't thought enough about how to make sure that friction is minimized for the audiences that they're intending to purchase it. So let's talk about this for one second, then. When you think about just a simple process for turning a hypothesis into a fact and, and like a simple experiment, you know, we talked at the end of part one. Can you actually refresh everybody on on the, the friction map? And then let's talk about the experiments people can run against it. Sure. sure. So in the first episode, we talked about the four. We talked about the, the new book that I came out with with my co-author, Lauren Norder, and The Human Element. And The Human Element is all about minimizing the headwinds, minimizing the resistance that awaits any new idea in the market, that a lot of attention has been paid to how to make ideas better, how to find a new idea, how to build a business around a new idea. But we haven't seen as much written about how to minimize all of the invariable headwind that will stand in the way, mostly because people do not like change. Even though they know they ought to change or they know that the current way they're doing things is inadequate, people resist new ideas simply because it's unfamiliar or it's ambiguous or it makes them feel trepidation or they don't like being told what to do. And so in this book, we break these frictions down into four primary headwinds that await any new idea. One is the friction of inertia, which is someone's overwhelming des desire to stick with the familiar or the status quo, despite the fact that they know it's not great. Number two is effort, how much perceived effort, either cognitive effort, physical effort, economic effort is required for somebody to adopt the change. The more effort, the more resistance. Emotion, how much anxiety or trepidation or bad feelings might we cause in other people simply by bringing this new thing to market? And this is particularly profound in B2B. So the person who you're, is your direct contact at the company might think this is a great idea, but somebody else in the organization might feel threatened by it. Somebody else might feel like their job is at jeopardy. Somebody else might feel like they don't want to relinquish part of their precious budget to contribute to it. So how well do you understand all of the emotional friction that exists? And then fourth is reactance, which is people's aversion to being told what to do by others. And this is sort of typified by the pushy like car salesperson. When you go to a car dealership and somebody's giving you the hard sell, it's not that this person is isn't knowledgeable. They are clearly knowledgeable. They know a ton about this car that you don't know. 
but you're not listening to their facts. You're listening to the fact that they're trying to push you into making a deal that you're not sure you're comfortable with. And simply the pushiness of that completely erodes and minimizes any goodness they bring with facts and information. So all of these frictions show up in, in change. How well can we anticipate them? And by anticipating them, how can we minimize them when we introduce our idea into the world? And what Jess was mentioning before is there's a tool that we've created in this book called a friction map or a friction report, where before you begin a project or before you start building a venture, sit down with your team and this map and say, all right, where do we think the sources of inertia might come from? If they're present, where might they be present? Who's, who might feel this way? Who's, who, who are we designing for and where might this unfamiliarity become a problem? Where are the sources of effort? Where are the sources of emotion? Where are the sources of reactance? And we frame these as hypotheses. Our guess or our belief or our assumption is that this group in this company will feel trepidation because it will feel very ambiguous relative to the concrete world they know. Or this group inside of this company is going to feel threatened because they will see this in some way is minimizing their job security because technology is going to replace human to human interaction. And if we know these things or we, we have these things documented, we can run some experiments. We can go out and interview people. We can talk about different ways we might introduce an idea. We can prototype with introduction of new concepts, just like we prototype with the concepts themselves. And friction theory in this book is really all about designing the way we introduce new ideas into the world not just designing the idea. So when you think about the kind of experiments, make this hypothesis, can you give us some examples? Yeah. Make the hypothesis and then go do an experiment. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I work quite a bit in medicine, working with healthcare companies and, you know, I'll usually have somebody, for example, who's creating some sort of a workflow management system related to a certain disease state. So maybe it's digestive health and they're planning on integrating with a person's dietitian and they're integrating with a person's primary health physician and a person's GI person. And this is the software that's going to kind of connect all these things together. And the question usually comes down to like, all right, what's it going to take for this service or this product to be adopted into the clinic? Who has to be on board? Who has to get used to it? Who has to become comfortable with it? And basically the answer that you get from some entrepreneurs is, well, really what it's going to take is doctors and nurses completely changing the way they practice medicine. You're like, okay, slow down. Like how easy do you think it's going to be for somebody who's been doing something a certain way for 20 or 30 years to immediately change how they adopt it overnight? And when you start thinking about what that means in terms of inertia, even though they've been using spreadsheets and paper-based charts, and we know it's imperfect in terms of information transfer, it's something that maybe the person working in the reception desk has known for 20 years. How do we go about minimizing that inertia? How do we slowly build confidence in this new idea versus try to drop it on somebody all at once. This is why like 70% of digital transformations fail is it usually starts with one Herculean announcement like, all right, we're going to do digital transformation. And everyone in the organization's like, nope, not for me. No, thanks. Like I'm good doing it the way that I want to do it. It sounds overwhelming. It sounds Herculean. So how might we use the tools of friction theory to approach things in a different way that minimizes that inertia? And again, until we know that these things are true, they're all assumptions. So we put them on a piece of paper, like a business model canvas and say, all right, what experiment can we design to find out if this is or not the case? And if it is, how might we use some of these tried and true practices to minimize that friction by introducing it in a different way than we otherwise might have? And the same is true for emotion. Same is true for effort. Okay. So I'm sitting here listening to this. I wonder if we can use my business as an example. So sure. we talked, we talked a little bit about my Airbnb resorts for action sports families and people who are like yep. really passionate about the outdoors, right? Yep. So we're putting them near national parks 
surf ski resorts or surfing beaches or lakes or, you know, places that these passionate outdoors people want to go anyways. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we add like, you know, we want to be the only, we want to be the only Airbnbs outside of Park City that come with their own private rope tow and snowboard park. Or, you know, we want to be the only ones by such and such lake with their own private mountain bike park that you can only use if you're staying there, whatever. Right. So it's like, it's stuff on the fuel side. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but as you're sitting here talking, I'm thinking, yeah, but you know what? Our stuff actually isn't in Park City. Our stuff, or like, you know, like our first property up by Seattle. Well, it's like, it's like an hour from Tacoma. It's on the other side of Puget Sound. And even though there's like cabins all down Puget Sound there, and it's all these, you know, wealthy tech people coming out on the weekend or stuff like this, right? Like Shelton, Washington is not like this destination. People are copying on Airbnb. How do I go to Shelton? How can I possibly hmm. find a place in Shelton? Stay at the new Four like, Seasons in Shelton. Yeah, right? Or like, like we just partnered up this 1200 acre ranch in Southeast Wyoming. And it's like, it's literally 10 minutes from the entrance to the, you know, three and a half million acres of the Teton Bridger National Forest. It's like, there's incredible stuff for dirt bikes and razors and there's fishing and there's, it's 10 minutes from this little ski resort. But, but people are not like typing in Cokeville, Wyoming. They've never mm-hmm. heard of it. There's like 500 people there, right? Mm-hmm. It's this like really great location if you want to get away from the crowd and the commercialism of Jackson Hole or Park City or whatever. Except people aren't searching for it. Like people aren't like, I can just see, like, as we've been talking about, you know, all these fears about like, well, what's there? Well, you know, like, I think, what are all the concerns that mom has about the logistics of this trip or things yeah. like this? Yeah. And so what videos can we make? What things can we do to take out ambiguity as you're yep. talking about? And I'm just interested, like what other kind of friction experiments am I not mentioning there that you would recommend? Oh, there's a ton. There's a ton. And, and I don't know that we have time to get into all of them. <laughs> sure. maybe, maybe I'll give you one. And this kind of goes back to the example I, I shared in the previous episode about the custom furniture manufacturer and how they got people to convert, which wasn't about changing yeah. the product. It was about minimizing the friction. One of the ways we learn about what these frictions are, are by interviewing people that had really strongly considered whether or not to do something and ultimately said yes. And what we do is, and I say this term sort of gently, but, but, but truthfully, we interrogate them. So when you've got somebody who decided to, after a while of considering it, sign up to be on this property in Washington or sign up on this property in Wyoming, interview them for an hour and be like, I'd love to just learn what the thought process it was that went into making this decision. Like, when did it first occur to you that maybe going off the beaten track was something you wanted to do? When did you realize an adventurous sports vacation was something you wanted to try on or you sort of imagined in your mind? Where did you do to learn about it? Where did you go for information? How did you arrive at this particular site? How did you arrive at this particular, this particular property? And like, from the moment you saw it to the moment you said, yes, like what were the back and forths that you had with your partner? What were the back and forths you had with yourself? What were the anxieties? And what you learn is that people will typically tell you like, oh, this is what made me uncomfortable. And I couldn't quite find out any information about the, this, this amenity or like I was really surprised by how far I was away from where I thought it was. But once you start to see these patterns emerge in these interviews, you do 10, 12 of these interviews with people, ideas will start presenting themselves. Now I realize that people didn't understand that it came with all of these pieces of equipment and all they needed to do is show up with a weekend bag and not lug their skis and their bike. How might we be a little bit more upfront about making it very clear what they're going to experience when they arrive? How do we understand the progress they're trying to make? It's not just about giving them these, these, these features and benefits. How do we give them, maybe partner them with guides or services that give them the confidence to try something they might be unfamiliar with? It's not about not having the telemark skis there. It's about having somebody show them how to feel comfortable on telemark skis. 
or it's not about the fact that the rope toes there. It's about somebody giving them the confidence to actually strap on a snowboard for the first time and go down without hurting themselves. And once we start thinking about progress more than product, and once we understand from past experience where these sources of hesitation and trepidation come from, one of the beautiful things about friction theory is once we identify the source, the solution usually presents itself. Like it becomes relatively obvious, which actually makes it a lot of fun. It's like being a detective. Once you identify the source of the tension, the solution is usually self-evident. No, I love it. Well, maybe in our last minute here, before I let you go, you know, I, I'm such a book nerd. I've had so many New York Times bestselling authors on the show, right? And you have, you've thought more deeply about your model than a lot of folks that I've had the chance to interview. You, I, I'm interested in what you think you may have done differently than other folks to achieve the success you've had, because your ability to articulate it, play with it inside out and backwards, apply it, like it's very much at your fingertips. And I find a lot of other folks, they have a good idea, but they don't have the command of it that you have. Wow. What do you think that maybe you've done differently to achieve the level of success that you've received? Boy, first of all, that is a really flattering question. Thank you. And that's high praise coming from you. You know, I, I think that a lot of the success or a lot of the traction this book is getting, I think, is because of the partnership between Lauren and I. Lauren is a researcher and a psychologist by training. And for those of you that don't know, Lauren's my co-author. This book, I think, achieve, uh, attempts to achieve two things. Number one, to explain how to overcome these frictions, but also to explain why they're there in the first place and to understand the human psychology and the science behind it. And I think that what Lauren brings in droves is the deep understanding of human beings that help us understand why we react to things in certain ways. And what I bring is a lot of the applied experience, both from entrepreneurship and IDEO about what are some tools and techniques and frameworks we can use to, to put these ideas into action. And I think it's, I think it's this harmony between the rigor of the, of the research that supports these ideas and the application of these ideas themselves that I think creates that kind of outcome that you've noticed. And I, that's exactly what we were going for. And I'm delighted that that's how it is received. Well, you know, Da Vinci said that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Okay. I can always tell like a real expert because they can dumb it down to the point that it's useful to me who doesn't have their years of research and background. I'm interested, maybe this will be my final question. When you think about a principle for the rest of us, you know, something we're working on or something we're trying to explain of, of getting to like simplicity on the other side of complexity, where it's actually useful to mere mortals, what advice mm -hmm. would you have for the rest of us to, to be able to have it more explainable like yours? Oh man. So we talk about this a lot in the book, actually, and this, this gets into the friction of inertia, which is anytime you're trying to come up with something new, whether it's a new theory or whether it's a new business model or a new product, just by the virtue of the fact that it's new, it will be unfamiliar to the audience. And it may not be unfamiliar to you because you were the expert, because you've been working on it for years or months. It's really important to make sure that you're taking the audience's frame of reference into consideration when you bring this idea to them. And so I wish I could say, do this, this, and this, and you'll have a, you'll have a much better time. But I think anything you can do to make unfamiliar ideas feel more familiar. And it's funny, I'm, I'm, I've got a column now for Inc. and I'm just writing a, a an article on this, how to make unfamiliar ideas more familiar as a way to minimize friction. But then the other thing I would recommend is just workshop it. Like go and find some people who represent the intended audience and say, this is how I'm thinking about introducing this. What, what feedback do you have? And I was actually just giving a design class a few moments ago. One tool that I like to use is I'm going to give you my two minute pitch. And then what I want to do is give you one minute 
to feed back to me what you think the most important that's <laughs> like this is what this is what i said what did you hear what did you hear is being important and then you get 30 seconds to take that one minute and distill it down even further and these types of like reductionist exercises can help us get to the essence of what it is that we're doing but i think there's tried and true techniques like metaphor and analogy but all of that's chat ch uh, all of that's in chapter two of the book so i don't want to spoil it i don't want to spoil when the robot voice tells you <laughs> this is so great hey listen, <laughs> thank you for making time for this That's my pleasure helpful to me personally i hope i hope a lot of people listening liked it too but i like i love this conversation it's awesome thanks for doing this and i will come see you in, in park city one of these days you should all right um, thanks for having me Jeff. Yeah, everybody thanks so much for listening